The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our, our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Sandra. The New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thank the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Marty. I thank you for standing to receive the gospel as recorded in Matthew. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 
He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would open our eyes that we would see Jesus this morning. We're asking that you would open our ears, that we would hear the word of the Lord being spoken to us. And we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would love and serve and follow Jesus today. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in our third week here of a series that we're calling We Believe In And we're calling it that because this is a series on the Nicene Creed. And the first three words of each of the major sections of the Creed are, we believe in. And so in week one, we talked about the significance of those three words, that this word we is so important because sometimes the little me of faith might be weak. And, and, and how the very best thing to do when you go through seasons of struggling with doubt or unbelief is is to keep coming, keep gathering with the church and keep confessing together because we remember that this creed is the only profession of Christian faith that is used in every stream of the body of Christ. And so it is kind of an instrument of unity, but it also helps us be carried even through our seasons of doubt and of questions. But then we said this word believe makes us, it invites us into faith, not into proof. This is not about saying, well, this is what I can prove, and this is what I'm certain of, or this is the kind of evidence that I have. No, it says, no, look, this is about believing. This is about putting your faith in God. And so the creed kind of functions like an outline of theology. In fact, one of the early church fathers called it a rule of faith. He, he began to, to use, develop many of these phrases uh, as a rule of faith, put them together, and then the creed uh, expands on it. But a rule of faith is really, in, in the early sense, like a pattern, okay? P- rule as in pattern. Uh, think about a child learning to write and they trace letters, A, B, and they do it over and over again. They're following the rule, they're following the pattern, they're tracing their letters. And so in a very similar way, saying this creed over and over again is a way of learning the vocabulary of faith. But then that third word, in This isn't something distant from us where we say we believe that you are God or that you are the Son of God. We believe in is a posture of worship, not a posture of analysis. It invites us to place our entire life in to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So week one, we dealt with stanza one about God the Father. We also talked about where the creed began, uh, how it was written and formulated So in the year 325 A.D., the emperor Constantine gathered about 318 bishops in the city of Nicaea. And these bishops came and they said, look, this is Orthodox Christian teaching. This is the apostles' doctrine. Remember that phrase in Acts 2? It says, this is what's been passed on to us. And they formalized it because there were some other teachings that were beginning to pop up in other parts of the empire that were not in in fitting with that. They didn't fit with that, in keeping with that. And so they get together in 325, they formalize it with the creed. In 381, there's another council in Constantinople where they expand on on one of the paragraphs just a little bit, and then it gets set in stone, so to speak. 
But I know sometimes, you know, all of us, you know, a lot of you, you're good evangelicals, so you're kind of saying, oh, Glenn, I, I appreciate the creed and all that, but this is just words of man. Give me the word of God. You might be interested to know <laughs> that the same council that formalizes the creed is the same council that formalized which books should belong in the New Testament. The word we use for that is the canon. What belongs in the canon of Scripture? So creed and canon belong together. Moreover, one of the early heretics came, arrived at his heresy by claiming to have been reading the Bible literally. So Marcion develops this heresy where there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, but they're kind of different. He develops this by simply reading the Scriptures. You see, as it turns out, if left to our own devices to just sort of read the scripture on our own, we could fall into pitfalls. I know that goes against a little bit of our rugged evangelical Colorado individualism where it's like, just give me my Bible, brother, you know. And we don't want to admit that we actually could make some errors along the way. So the creed belongs with the scripture as a way of saying, when you read the Bible, don't read it in a way that contradicts these things. When you read the Bible, you can't come up with conclusions that actually deny the divinity of Christ, for example. And so they kind of belong together. So week one, we talked about God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Week two, we talked about Jesus, who he is in relation to God. This week, we're going to talk about Jesus, who he is in relation to us, humanity. It's interesting because the longest sections of the creed are all about Jesus. Wouldn't you know that the heart of Christianity, at the heart of Christianity is Christ? And so right belief and right thinking about who Jesus is really matters. And that's why that's the longest section of the creed. They're saying to you, you can't claim to be a Christian and believe wrong things about Christ. We've got to get this right. So our section for today, if we could read this together when it comes up here on the screen. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Last week when we took it phrase by phrase, the stanza before this, we, we spent a lot of time kind of showing where some of these phrases come from. Oh, this phrase, you know, light from light, or God from God, or only begotten of the Father. We're saying, okay, look at that. That's there in Paul, and that's there in John, in John's gospel. And we spent a lot of time showing where the phrases come from. Today, we don't really have to spend a lot of time showing where these claims come from, because they're in all four of the gospels. The story of, of Jesus' life on earth, his suffering, his death, his burial, that's there. And so we, we don't need to look at this phrase by phrase to really say, where do these phrases come from? Today we're going to look at these phrases and say, what does it mean and why does it matter? So the first phrase, for us and for our salvation, don't miss right off the bat how deeply personal this is. That all of a sudden, these great theologians of the early church are saying, okay, 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 we've, we, it's not just important to, to understand who. You need to know how personal this is. It was for you that he came, for us and for our salvation. Sometimes maybe we fall into this place of saying, well, it's for the glory of God, brother. 
It's for the glory of God, sister. I mean, don't, worry, don't make this about you. That's true in one sense, but it's incomplete. Yes, Christ came for the glory of God, but he also came for us and for our salvation. This wasn't some sort of display of his own power, some sort of impersonal demonstration of might and authority. This was personal. This was for you. This was for me. And this word salvation, it's not just for us as if God came and he does something for us, but it's not actually what we need. You ever had a friend try to help you out? They're like, I'm doing this for you, man. And you're like, yeah, but that's not actually what I need. Many times as, as children, we probably felt that, right? Parents are like, I'm doing this for your own good. And you're like, no, you're not. It's because you're a meanie. But the, the writers of the creed are saying, for us and for our salvation to rescue us. When the New Testament talks about salvation, it talks about it in two dimensions. What we're being saved from and what we're being saved to. If you would like to have a word to summarize each of those movements, one of the New Testament's favorite words to talk about what we're saved from is the word freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, Paul wrote. Freedom from, and the image, the great image that, that every sort of Jewish uh, convert to Christianity, if you will, came to, to understand was the Passover, was Exodus, was being freed from Egypt. So when Paul starts to say we've been ransomed by his blood, they're thinking Passover, and they're thinking a great liberation out of an oppressor, from an oppressor's grip, freedom from but then the New Testament writers also use this word power, where they say you've received power to now be children of God. See, it's not enough to know what we've been saved from. We have to know what we've been saved to. It's not good enough you say, well, you're fine, you're off the hook. You're like, great. But if you've not actually been made new, then what changed? Nothing. Will you likely get back in that same trap? Yeah, probably. You know, it's like the story of the kid being um, called out in the middle of math class, you know, and the teacher's like, could you come and work out this algebra sum on the board in front of the class? Did you ever have a teacher like that? You know? And you're standing up there and you're sweating and you're trying to work it out. You know? And the teacher says, I got good news, I got good news. You're wrong, but you get to do this sum again. And you're like, that's not good news. Because I still don't know how to do it. Salvation is not just, hooray, you've got a new start. Your messy work has been erased. You get to do it again. You're like, that is terrible news. Because <laughs> nothing's changed. I still don't get this formula. So salvation is not just what we've been freed from. It's a new power that's been given to us. Power to become new creatures, new creation. C.S. Lewis does this beautiful illustration in Mere Christianity. Where he talks about two horses. Only one of them is actually a pegasus. You know, those, the mythical winged horse. And he's like, before the pegasus has developed its wings, and you, you put them side by side with another horse, and you have them jump hurdles, the trained horse may look better. It might be like, wow, that trained horse is really clearing all those hurdles. And the Pegasus may be kind of clumsy, tripping over hurdles all the time. And Lewis is trying to illustrate the point that without the gospel, a human being can be well-trained. 
You could have the right upbringing, the right kind of access to good education, and you could be well-trained. You're just so proper, good manners. You're just a wonderful citizen. And the person who's saved may be rough around the edges, and you're like, oh, I don't know if that person's really a Christian. What kind of salvation have they received? But one day, the wings of the Pegasus fully develop. And then they're not clearing hurdles, they're flying. And Lewis says, that is all the difference. That makes all the difference. See, salvation is not about reforming your behavior. It's about the power to become children of God, the power to be new creation, the power to actually be set on a different kind of trajectory, even if it looks like you're clumsily clearing hurdles right now. Then the creed goes on. It says, he came down from heaven. In the Hebrew understanding of the world, earth was the realm of humans. It was where humans lived and worked and operated. And heaven was a way about talking about God's realm. The Greeks had something like this, but the Greeks sort of thought that the gods stayed up in heaven and didn't really care about what happened on earth. The Hebrews at least thought that, you know know what, the God of heaven cares about the affairs of men. But the gospel takes it one step further. It says he doesn't just care. He came down from heaven. Came down. You know, I was thinking about the people who serve as pararescue, maybe in the Coast Guard or in the Air Force. I had a friend who was training for this once. They're not riding in their ship or their boat and looking at someone who's caught in stormy seas, drowning, and they're not looking and saying, hey, um, put your left hand and then your right hand, and then just, you know, they're not shouting instructions from the boat. These are people who are trained to dive in. These are people who jump into the storm to save. If Christ was going to come for our salvation, then he needed to come without just yelling good advice. He needed to come down from heaven descending into the storm and the waves and the turbulence of the ocean of our world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. This is where for a lot of people it's like, I don't get this. And if history was our only lens of finding truth, we would look at the statement and say, that's never happened before. And if science was our only lens for learning truth, we'd say, that doesn't happen anymore. So history says, if it's never happened before, it's not likely that it did happen this once. Science says, if I can't, if it doesn't happen anymore, if, it, if I can't observe it, it's not repeatable, then it doesn't, certainly we should doubt this. But you know, there, there used to be a different way of knowing truth. In addition, complementing history and science and all the things we can see, there is another lens. It's the lens of faith that says, you know, faith is a lens of knowing. Faith is a way of knowing truth. And so the early Christians invite us into this thing. They say, put on this lens. Put on the lens of faith that says, I'm seeing a kind of truth that is beautiful and compelling, and it makes this amazing epic story about God taking on our humanity and being born, but I don't know how to exactly prove or demonstrate or repeat that. Sometimes theologians on the more liberal end of the spectrum have said, well, yeah, well that's all just mythic, you know, there's no, there's not a virgin birth, there was 
surely there was another human involved. But hey, but hey, Jesus' life was special and somehow God was at work in Christ. And the problem with that is if you're going to say that there was something special about Jesus, then you've already opened the door to the supernatural. Either he was purely a natural teacher, and we dealt with this last week, or there truly was something remarkable about him. And if it is true, then why not humbly receive the words that have been passed on to us, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate. And somehow we put on the lens of faith and say, I I don't know how to fully make sense of this, but I believe. Help me, help my unbelief. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Crucifixion in the first century was not just a way to kill criminals. It was a way to shame them. When you found the most despicable criminals or rebels, you would kill them through crucifixion because it was a public display of how terrible these people are. It was a way of shaming them. The slave revolt of Spartacus was put down with mass, mass crucifixion. Why? As a way of saying, these are the scum of the earth. These are the worst of the worst. Can you think for a minute what it means to say that the Son of God died a death that only the scum of the earth suffer? Think that last week, just last week, just a few lines ago, we were saying that he's God from the God, light from light, through him all things are made. You're like the exalted Christ. And today we're saying, crucified? The Christ who went all the way down to the scum of the earth level? And it said he suffered death and was buried It's interesting that in between there, there's this name. It's the only other name besides the Trinity that's referenced in the creed, right? That's not the only, one of two. We'll get to the second in a minute. Pontius Pilate, what a bummer. You think he thought that was going to be his legacy? You know, Pilate was this Roman official. Humanly speaking, he was at the top of his game. Wealth. Wisdom, power, strength, might, this guy was up there, upward trajectory. And it's probably why when his wife warns him, she says, I've had this dream, you you, you need to find a way out of this situation. He goes, I'm washing my hands of this. I'm about to retire. I need to make sure my legacy is intact. Someone said maybe his wife's dream was millions and millions of Christians for the next 2,000 years and more, confessing every Sunday he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. (laughs) Ah! Suffered death and was buried. What the early Christian theologians want us to know is that Jesus' birth, Jesus' suffering, and Jesus' death was physical and actual was physical and actual. He wasn't faking it. So let's do a little heresy recap, okay? I know, you know, never thought you'd hear that in church. A little heresy recap. Week one, we addressed the heresy of Marcionism. That first stanza where it says we believe in one God is meant to address the heresy of this teacher called Marcion who said there's two gods, Old Testament God, New Testament God. One's material things, one's spiritual things. They're like, that's never, and the the early Christian theologians are like, no, that's never been what Christians believed. 
And then last week, we dealt with Arianism. Remember the chap named Arius, who said Jesus was not really fully divine. He was a creature that was super anointed. And they said, yeah, St. John didn't believe that. And St. Paul didn't believe that. That's not what has been passed forward. It's like, okay, okay. Today, the heresy is docetism. And it means this, that Jesus only appeared to be human. Probably the best way to understand it is docetism is Superman and Clark Kent. You know, Clark Kent, when Superman is Clark Kent, he never stops being Superman, right? You know, he puts on regular clothes and puts on these amazing glasses which make every man better looking. (laughs) Writes as a reporter. It may make him more handsome, but it doesn't make him lose his powers, right? There's, there's these scenes in the Superman movies where, you know, different ones have different versions of it where something's going wrong at the Daily Planet or something's going, and he's still in his Clark Kent disguise, and he's like, what should I do? Should I save 50 kids in a school bus, or should I keep my cover, you know? It's like, okay, I'll just quickly save them or save Lois or whatever, you know? And then he's back to normal. He's like, hey, nothing, nothing to see here, folks, you know? I'm, I'm really just an ordinary person. And sometimes we, that's what we think of Jesus. We're like, Jesus, all, the whole time in the Gospels, Jesus was, was pulling some big prank that he was sort of like, hit me, hit me. Ooh, that hurt. Just kidding. <laughs> do it, do it again. Hit me. Ooh. No, just kidding. It didn't hurt. And then he was, that his whole life was just sort of a big wink, wink. <laughs> that's a heresy. Jesus didn't simply appear to be human. He was fully human. It's interesting you think about it even from birth, right? We have these old Christmas carols, the cattle are lowing, you know, no crying he makes. Yeah, right. I have four kids. If there was cattle and sheep and goats around him at bedtime, they're screaming their head off too. So baby Jesus was fully human. And this matters. This matters because, not because of trivia, not because of like, hey, make sure that at your next, you know, office party, you can tell them the one about Superman and Clark Kent and Jesus. (laughs) Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus didn't just pretend to be human, that he really was fully human? St. Gregory of Nazanius said it this way, the unassumed is the unhealed. He doesn't mean assumed like you're making an assumption and when you make assumptions you know what happens. He doesn't mean that. He means the unassumed is that which you don't take on. If Jesus hadn't fully taken on our humanity, it would not be fully healed. And so when Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus' death, he wasn't faking it. He was sad. When Jesus was pierced to the heart because one of his followers had betrayed him, he wasn't pretending he was hurt. When Jesus knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and in agony prayed that this cup may pass from him, he wasn't just acting out a script. He carried our very agony. And when Jesus said on the cross, I am thirsty, he wasn't adding to the drama of the moment. He was really thirsty. And when Jesus 
in his final hours said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't giving us a pattern to follow when we suffer. He was actually crying out from the depths. Do you know why this matters? It matters because you and I will suffer pain in this life. At some point, you're going to lose someone. At some point, you'll feel betrayal. And at some point, you're going to die. None of us makes it out of this earth alive. God bless you. Go enjoy your lunch, right? (laughs) The gospel says that even in those darkest moments, Jesus is there. Jesus is there. You thirst, he's been thirsty. You weep, he's wept. You suffer, he's suffered. You die, he's died. You're buried, he was buried. There is not one aspect of human experience that Jesus did not take on. Every part of our life here on earth, the physicality, the mortality, why does this matter? For one, it dignifies your humanity, doesn't it? I grew up in a church that had a bit of that hyper-Pentecostal thing where we all sort of recited, I am a spirit, I have a soul, I live in a body. You've heard that? You don't get that from the New Testament. Because that sort of thing is like, I really am a spirit. I'm just kind of temporarily hanging out in this costume. But Jesus' body wasn't a costume. It was his actual body. And so what, he, what this says to us is every part of your human life, your love of good food, your love of good music, your delight in friendships, every part of this is now redeemed. Why? Because Jesus became fully human. In fact, he was the only truly fully human being. Which is why when you sometimes say, when you make a mistake, you're like, I'm sorry I spilt that milk, I'm only human. It's actually not technically true. You messed up because you're less than human. (laughs) Jesus was the only truly, fully human. And he shows us what it means to be fully human. The unassumed is the unhealed, St. Gregory of Nazianzus said in the mid-300s. Everything Jesus took on, he took on so he could heal. Our Old Testament reading was in Isaiah 53, and Isaiah talks about this, that he bore our affirmities, took on our afflictions. For our sake he suffered. Peter takes this on in his letter, and he says, you know what this means? This means that we can now have the healing of our relationship with God. When Peter quotes Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, he's not talking about sickness. He's talking about the separation of our relationship from God. And he says, we are now healed because of Jesus. When Matthew, in his gospel, references Isaiah 53, he's talking about physical healing. But he's talking about it in the presence of Jesus arriving on the scene and healing. And the healings in Matthew's gospel become a way of demonstrating something, of announcing something. Maybe the best illustration of this is found in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Any Tolkien fans? This scene, I'll, okay, first, first the confession. I have never read the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Had never read. The good part's coming. I had read Fellowship of the Ring and stopped in the early part of the Two Towers. A little bit 
obtuse. But this summer, I read The Return of the King. I thought, skip the two-tower stuff. Let's go right for the good stuff, right? <laughs> I picked up Return of the King. First 80 pages or so, you're like, pick it up, Tolkien, you know? And then it gets really good. But this scene somehow is not in Peter Jackson's movies. Actually, it's not surprising because if anybody ruined Tolkien, Peter Jackson did. Anyway, um, especially with The Hobbit. But that's another story. There's this scene here when Aragorn knows that he's the king. And he knows that he's the rightful heir. And he's on his way back to the throne. But he stops in the houses of healing. And the, the, there's two people in particular that are recovering at the houses of healing. There's Mary, the hobbit, and there's Eowyn, the uh, elf, I think. And she's, they're both there, but they're not able to fully be healed. And there's this woman that says, there's a old poem that says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so Gandalf and Aragorn arrive, and they're standing at the edge of the house, and Gandalf says, let us not stay at the door, for the time is urgent. Let us enter, for it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in this house. Isn't that beautiful? It is only the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in this house. Thus spake Eorath, wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. This is basically the subplot of the gospel according to Matthew. All of Matthew's stories of Jesus' miracles are to reveal that because healing is happening, the king has arrived. It's proof that the king has arrived. So shall the rightful king be known. Because the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. Think about it. Matthew's gospel opens with a story about the king of the Jews, but his name's Herod. And when this, at this king's hands, two-year-old boys are killed. And Jesus arrives, and people are healed. The sick are healed. The blind eyes are open. The lame walk. The deaf hear. The mute speak. What's Matthew saying? He's saying, so shall the arrival of the king be revealed. Because the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. That's why Jesus takes on our humanity. To heal it. To let us know that even in our lowest and darkest places, we are not alone and it will not be the end. Even your suffering will not be the end. Even your death will not be the end. Jesus took it on and what he suffered was broken through the resurrection. Not that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean we can start commanding healings and controlling sickness over our body. No. It just means that in the end, all shall be well. Because Jesus took it on. And every bit of healing that happens in the here and now is a sign that points to it, that says, it's coming. It's coming. For in the coming of the King lies the hope for all who are sick in this house. The hands of the king are the hands of the healer. The final thing I want, us to leave, want to leave us with this morning is, did you catch that in this stanza of the creed, we, the us, the plural first person, has moved from action to reception? If you're a grammar nerd, it moved from nominative case to objective case. All the other stanzas where the first person plural occurs is in the subject of the sentence. We believe in. We believe in. We believe. Now it's for us. We're still there, 
but we're no longer doing the action. Why does this matter, church? Because the gospel is not about anything you could do. You could not save yourself. You could not free yourself. You could not change yourself. You could not make yourself new. You could not change anything about your situation. We were stuck. But Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The creed says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He's crucified under Pontius Pilate for our sake. We were stuck. See, the gospel isn't about all the things we can do for God, all the things we can show God, and all the things we can present God, and all the things we can uh, prove and demonstrate. The gospel is something that God has done for us. For us and for our salvation. I told you that Pilate wasn't the only human who's named in this stanza. Who's the other human? It's Mary. Mary and Pilate provide us a beautiful reflection of two very different ways to respond to Jesus. Pilate, at the end of Jesus' life, supervises the taking of Jesus' life. Pilate, with his indifference, says, I don't know. And so his legacy is that he presided over the death of Christ. But Mary, in the beginning of the story, the angel appears to her and she says, how can this be since I have not been with a man? And the angel says, it's the power of the Most High that will overshadow you. And Mary doesn't respond with indifference. Well, I don't know about that. We'll see. Mary says, be it unto me. Be it unto me according to your word. And so Pilate's indifference made his legacy being the one who presided over Jesus' death. Mary's humility and surrender gives her the honor of being the one who carries Jesus' birth into the world. In the first few centuries, the Greek theologians came up with a term for Mary. It's Theotokos, the bearer of God, the one who got to carry God in her womb. Blessed are you, Mary, the angel said, to be favored among all women. Forever we will remember you, Mary, as the one who said, be it unto me. And isn't this the heart of faith? The heart of faith is not like Pilate to say, well, I don't know if I can prove this. What is truth, Jesus? Remember that whole dialogue in John's gospel? Skeptical, indifferent. The heart of faith is like little Mary, this very likely teenage girl, saying, I don't know how this could be, but be it unto me. I think that's the way we respond this morning. You're listening to these words about the virgin birth and about Jesus, and you're like, how can this be? True, true, true. I don't know. <laughs> but the more important movement is not how can this be, but be it unto me. Be it unto me, Lord. I receive your salvation. I give thanks for it, God. For those of you that have received this gift, this morning is about saying, thank you, God. May your work continue in me. Be it unto me, Lord. 
Do it all until I'm fully healed and made right. Until the day of glory. Keep working in me. For those of you that have never made that, that statement, today might be your day. To say, I- I'm going to move from indifference and skeptic. I want to be like Mary. I still don't understand how this can be. But I want to say, let it be unto me. Amen?